Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Church History Podcast. Right up front, if you want to email us, you can do so at church.ahistory at gmail.com. That's church.ahistory at gmail.com. It's good to have you with us here. Last couple podcasts, we looked at the history of the worship service. That's some great feedback. I encourage you to go back and listen to those where we looked at the history of what it meant for the church to gather together. We gather together now as a church. If you are a Christian, the idea, especially in evangelicalism in the West, um, all over the world, people gather, they, they, uh, they, they hear preaching or teach of the Bible, they, maybe they take communion every week or maybe not every week, um, they spend time together, sing, um, worship God in different ways. And although there's very many expressions of this, we can look back 2,000 years and we can see how this, the church has continually built on a tradition, and there have th- there have been staples. There are things that are always, always, always in the worship service, and things that are kind of there, and sometimes they're there, sometimes they're not. And I think it's important to look at um, what the church has valued over time, and there are some things that have been valued over the course of almost 2,000 years. In the course of the last 150, we have done away with some of those things, um, which is not necessarily good. So today, um, I want to talk about something, uh, a period of time that I am sure will make many who listen to this feel uncomfortable. We've been blessed to have, over the past year and a couple months, build a following of well over a thousand listeners, um, or rather, um, our podcasts are listened to each one over a thousand times. And with that group of people, with that size, with that scale, there are going to be some of you that hear what I say and you're going to want to say that's not true. You're going to want to say that that didn't actually happen. And even some of the conclusions that I come to, you are going to want to say that that's not correct. And the reason for that is I am going to be looking at a period of time that exemplifies what it means for Americans, specifically United States Americans, to lose their focus on what it means to be the church in lieu of some type of nationalism. Now, nationalism, we need to be careful. Sometimes when you hear nationalism, you think immediately um, Hitler, the Third Reich, those types of things. Nationalism, although it can be defined several different ways, as I'm talking about it, as we look at this time period, it is when the church becomes more focused on what it means to be American and what it means to support their country than to be citizens of the kingdom of God and focus on what it means to be the church. Now, of course, this is a problem any way, anytime it rears its ugly head, nationalism, because um, the church is not American. The church is, is the church of Jesus Christ. In fact, the church is the church universal. The Catholic church is actually what the word Catholic means. Um, and I mean that in the sense of the universal church, not necessarily the actual Catholic denomination or, or family. 
I am talking about. Catholic, meaning the church, is found in every single country of the world. There are portions of the world where it's said that people have not heard the gospel, but it's hard to find those. Um, so there are churches in Africa. Some of the largest churches in the world are in Africa. Huge churches in Nigeria. Massive churches in Southeast Asia. Um, huge um, disciple-making networks and churches in South America. Um, all, you know, all over the place. So when the church, when people in the church become too focused on intertwining um, Americanism and nationalism in the sense of being Americans along with being Christians, they ultimately are going to set themselves up at odds with not only other nations, but also other Christians. It's very easy to look down on a Christian from a nation that you think is a lesser nation if you see your Christianity tied to being an American. All right. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at a specific time in, in American history. Um, and we're going to take two podcasts to do this. And we're calling this podcast Canceling the Apocalypse. Okay, canceling the apocalypse. Now, this phrase is taken from um, a kind of a silly movie called uh, Pacific Rim, where they there's they they get into massive ro robots to fight huge monsters that are coming out of the Pacific Ocean that are tearing they're tearing up the, the the planet. It's kind of silly, but there is this one moment where a very powerful character called Pentecost gets up and he gives a speech. You can look for it online, and he uses this phrase: "We are canceling the apocalypse." And this is right before they jump in the the pilots that pilot these massive robots jump in the robots to go have this epic show down in the Pacific Ocean with these monsters called Jaegers. And he says, we are canceling the apocalypse. And I wanted to use this phrase for the next couple, or this one in the next podcast, because I want to show you that there is a crisis. There's a crisis in the American psyche when it comes to nationalism versus um, being a Christian, a churchman, being a um, a follower of Christ, and they keep butting heads. It's not the only country this has happened. Of course not. This happens over and over again. It's just, I, it, it's almost like this thing inside our hearts that say, I'm a citizen of heaven, but I want more. And I don't know, kind of, I think that comes from a certain type of depravity that still kind of exists within us. But even in the midst of this, you will find that when it seems that the church is, that it goes back and forth and it faces these unbelievable trials, there are still those individuals, theologians, preachers, teachers, um, people of God groups that stand firm regardless of the time period that they're going through, and they are really canceling the apocalypse, meaning um, it, when it seems like things are just going to completely fall apart, they stand firm. Now, of course, they aren't just doing that. It's also God continuing to um, just maintain his church, and the church, as it should be, is never going to go away because Christ is the head of that church, so nothing will cancel it completely, but this is why we use this title. Now, what I want to look at is I want to look at basically... Um, I want to look at the time period from the end of World War One to the Great Depression, okay? And then the next time we get together, we will start with the Great Depression and then that time that leads up to World War II. 
So what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of information on World War One. Um, now, World War One, or it's it's sometimes called the First World War, um, was a global war that kind of came out of Europe. It lasted from July 28th, 1914 to November 11th, 1918. And it is also known as the Great War or the War to End All Wars, which was a um, little bit of a premature um, way of calling that war. Um, and it led to more than 70 million military personnel taking to the fields to fight one another. Um, out of that 70 million, about 60 million were Europeans. And, and what kind of came about was this was one of, if not the largest war in history. Um, there's usually World War II is seen as the largest war in history, but there's elements of this war that rival that as well. Um, there was an estimated 8.5 million combatant deaths and 13 million civilian deaths um, as a direct result of the war. And there were also genocides. And along with genocides, there was the Spanish flu. 1918, the Spanish flu pandemic caused another 17 to 100 million deaths worldwide, including estimated 2 0.64 million Spanish flu deaths in Europe and as many as 675,000 in the United States. So um, we won't talk a lot about the Spanish flu pandemic, but um, it was something that kind of came on the tail end of World War II. So this, or World War I rather. So this time period was absolutely um, uh, devastating and for the entire world. Um, but let's let's go down to the United States itself and let's look at what what it looked like as they came out of World War One. Now the United States they were involved in World War One, but not at the same level as other nations, and then they, they didn't have the far-reaching consequences that um, Europe had. And the main reason for this was there weren't battles that took place on the homeland of the United States. And not to mention, they ended up getting into the, um, the war very late in the game. So by and large, most Americans were spared experiencing like the destruction and, and bloodshed and the suffering of like their civilian population, like other countries in Europe. And although for a long time, public opinion was in favor of keeping the nation out of what appeared to be a European conflict, so the beginning of the war, they wanted nothing to do with it. The United States wanted nothing to do with it. Do with it. Once the United States declared war, um, the entire affair, the entire war, the entire push um, was seen as a, as a matter of glory and as honor. And this came from um, politicians, and this came from, and what we'll see, even preachers. So once the United States got into the war, it took a while to get into the war, but once they got into the war, um, they, they kind of moved very quickly into this, we're going into the war, um, and we're going to fight this war for glory and for honor. Now, the churches, um, really, in the United States, by and large, until 1916, they had, they had, like, supported, like, 
peace in general. They came together. There were actual conferences where they said, we want to push against going to war. It's not what we should do. But once um, the United States entered the war in 1916, this, this glory and honor and, again, what I'll call this kind of nationalistic tendency, it became rhetoric that showed up within the church. So liberals and fundamentalists, these two groups that we're going to look at, spoke of the need to save a civilization. And some among more radical fundamentalists began interpreting the events that were happening around the world as the events that we read about in the book of Revelation. Now, there were a couple Christian groups that really stand out apart from everybody else who'd be considered uh, Protestants. Um, the evangelical idea isn't really in, in play yet, but the idea of Protestants, there were a couple that, that stood out, um, Mennonites and Quakers. And, and many would argue that Quakers are not part of that Protestant, kind of the same orthodoxy as the rest of uh, Protestantism. Um, some would. Uh, but Mennonites, it's kind of interesting that um, the, the denomination that my family and my church are a part of, the missionary church, we came out our roots. We are rooted back into the Mennonites. Now, missionary churches don't look like Mennonite Mennonites or Mennonite churches, but some of those ideas of pacifism, of uh, this kind of nonviolent um, uh, way of looking at the world and politics and wars and those types of things, um, and even to even in theology to some degree, pacifism gets into theology. Um, there, so there's a couple groups that said that that, that kind of held off on that, but by and large, the church in this time, starting 1916, the Protestant church took up the flag. They went from peace to taking up this flag of we need to go fight for glory and for honor. And this is obviously a problem because Christians are not supposed to be going out to fight for glory and honor. Um, we're to be um, giving or acknowledging the glory of God and honoring one another, okay? Um, instead of going out trying to achieve that by doing, um, uh, going to battle. And this was a type of what I would call like war fever, this intensity that came to the churches. Other than some denominations that are traditionally pacifists like uh, Mennonites or, or Quakers, what, what kind of became the, the theme was churches are pushing and getting behind the war effort for honor and glory and because they are American. In fact, they're actually pastors. We have uh, sermons from pastors who were outright in their pulpit calling for the extermination of the German people in the name of God. Can you imagine that? Um, the extermination of the German people in the and of the German people in the name of God. Um, I didn't really mention the two sides of combatants on when I talked about World War One, but the Germans were who the Americans were fighting against. They were on that side, and um, obviously this created incredible issues for um, German Christians that lived in the United States. Um, there started to be. Um, racial issues between um, non-German Protestants and Germans who were Christians. And again, I just want you, we've, we've talked about this before, that um, we tend to look at like a snapshot of our world now, and we kind of think that's how it's always been. 
But And I'm not downplaying any type of racism, any type of power struggles or chauvinism or anything like that. But what I will say is that racism is not new, and we see that depending on the time and what's going on in history, those events tend to pin different races of people against each other. And um, what was also happening in the churches was they didn't reflect on the war. They didn't really reflect on what was going on in the war. They were just gung-ho, literally, about getting um, people there um, and then this whole idea of glory and honor. But again, this honor tended to be a little perverted and, and the glory uh, tended to be a little perverted. What ended up happening also is before as before the war started and before 1916 the churches were making kind of this turn towards um social awareness i hate to use this term but social gospel i know that means different things for many of you but the church is being aware of the fact that they are needing to kind of come together to reach and help the needs of the country in 1916 when the war, when the war when they when the united states entered the war and then it kind of went into when 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 the war ended it left the churches because of this focus on nationalism it caused the churches to retreat from that and actually have a conservatism that pushed back on anything that looked like social gospel, which was natural because during the war and what we see even in the the relationship that Protestants, American Protestants had towards the German people, the war tended to make the churches and Christians become isolated to think within their own silos and may I say racist against other groups that were not like themselves. So it just makes sense that as that became their heart, they pulled back from being um, social in, in, in the way that they wanted to reach and take care of people. They became very insulated. Even when the war ended, President Woodrow Wilson, um, he, he played an incredible role in coming over and being a part of the treaty um, or the armistice, rather. So uh, not the treaty, but it was an armistice, and it wasn't put together super well because we have World War II that comes up on its heels here in, in a couple decades. But um, he's involved in bringing the countries together, bringing together a ceasefire, um, and he pitches this vision of the League of Nations. And this is an idea that Woodrow Wilson has that uh, the, the nations can come together, they can have relationships, and we really can end wars by um, instead of dealing with them on the battlefield, we can deal with them um, in a room together. And in one of the more interesting political things, I, I especially in modern history that I've, that I've researched, Woodrow Wilson comes back and tells the American government, this is what we should do, and we need to come and partner with the Europeans, the American government actually shuts down the idea of their own president to have a type of peace that brings together people from different backgrounds, different races, and different nations. We just completely shoot that down. And I believe what has happened is, in a very short amount of time, the United States, as it has done in other periods of time, has become, again, has isolated itself. But this time, it's not about isolation to not get involved in European wars. There might be a little bit of that, but this also comes from the heart of a nation as a whole. Uh, it's us, 
we're going to focus on us and people on the outside of us are either less than us or at the very least um, don't need to be a part of us. And you might say, Matt, well, how can you how can you say that is uh, um, that's what's going on? How can you say that the 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 nation was becoming you know having this resurgence of racism, those types of things? And when I say the nation, I am still talking primarily pri- primarily about Protestant the Protestant Church, but the nation as a whole reflects that at this time. At this time, statistically, uh, many more people would call themselves church-going Christians than would now in 2021. But I can say this because, you know, partly as a result of the war, the United States entered a period of isolationism. And it, and this kind of what this was was a fear of everything foreign. And, and I'm going to start describing some things that will make you feel uncomfortable because it, it sounds a little bit like some of the thoughts we have of the world as Americans now. So a fear of everything foreign and everything uh, different. Uh, during the decade of the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan enjoyed a revival across our nation, and not just the North, but also in the South. And this is very interesting. Um, there's actually a book that I read a while, a long while ago, called The Ku Klux Klan, that talks specifically about this emergence and how it um, it looked different. One of the ways it looked different is instead of just focusing on African Americans, um, Catholics and Jews were also seen, along with blacks, as great enemies of American both Christianity and democracy. So this group combined those two things, um, Christianity and democracy. And in the, in the Southwest, the Mexican Revolution that was taking place at that time led many to flee Mexico and migrate to the United States, as many had done earlier from Europe. But the race and religion of most of these newer immigrants were not always welcome. And discrimination against all persons of Mexican descent increased, including violence. So this was a time where there's this racism that comes out of not just the country as a whole, but the but Protestants and in in the churches. And there were actually not many churches, church leaders that opposed these things. In fact, sometimes they threw themselves into these things. This was also the time where we start seeing what is called um, the Red Scare, okay? The Red Scare is the idea that there were communist spies and people who were communists that were infiltrating uh, Hollywood and infiltrating uh, politics, and, and they were coming over with the ideas of communist Russia, and they were trying to uh, infiltrate the United States system with that, and the, the country needed to come together and flush those people out. The churches, um, Protestant churches, by and large, even some of the more um, more liberal uh, um, denominations, got behind this, and this almost became a, a, ra- a rallying cry for them, and they called it the Red Threat. So they even took their own uh, language. So they took the Red Scare, they made it the Red Threat, and they got behind this, and they said that even as Protestants, as Christians, we need one of the things we need to be doing is flushing out or helping the government flush out communists in our society, which again is not at all what we are supposed to be doing as Christians. 
um, the this kind of political push um, became a problem. In fact, Billy Sunday, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was a famous um, evangelist. Um, this is going to kind of blow uh, your mind, but um, Billy Sunday declared that the deportation of radicals, and he's talking about um, communist, was too easy a punishment and one that would be costly to the nation. Instead, he suggested, this was one of the leading um, evangelists of the time, instead he says they should be all they should all be lined up and shot. There's the quote. They should all be lined up and shot. Great, great words from an evangelist of that time. And some Christians uh, found themselves in situations also where their the heads of their denomination um, began to see what was going on and began to kind of push back, especially in mainline denominations during this time between World War One and the Great Depression. Um, the uh, uh, mainline denominations, and you kind of do some research into kind of what that is, but that, that tends to be a, a different than it's a different type of Protestant church within the Protestant churches in our um, in our nation. Um, the leaders were saying we're getting out out of hand, and we need to. Need to be more. We need to get back to being more focused on you know loving your neighbor and those types of things instead of being so nationalistic. But there was this odd kind of dynamic that happened during this time where the rank and file of the pastors that were pastoring churches, by and large across the country, they remained very nationalistic, and there was tension between um, the denominational heads and also um, what was going on in the churches. And this phenomenon would uh, characterize many de- mainline denominations for for decades afterwards. Um, the split in theology as well as in politics between a national leadership of liberal, political, and social tendencies and a significant portion of the rank and file who felt that their own denominational leaders did not represent their views. So there was conflict that was happening there. And the conflict between liberals and fundamentalists, um, so these are terms where uh, fundamentalists tended to be a little bit more of what we're talking about, focusing on on this kind of nationalistic idea, and, and I'm an American and, and I'm a Christian, and liberals kind of beginning to push back on that. Um, this was exacerbated in the post-war period. So it was kind of taking place before that, but at this point, you have this intense fundamentalist idea of of, of, of we, are, um, we are part of this American system, and, and, and God has made our country. We are the new Israel. God has made our country the greatest country because he loves us the most, and, and, and we need to make sure we cleanse it from any um, you know, foreign influence, any influence that's not the type of government we have. This becomes a, a rallying cry for the fundamentalists. And uh, this was also the time of the famous Scopes trial, which symbolized the high point in the effort on the part of the fundamentalists to ban the teaching of the theory of evolution in public schools. So this also happens between World War One and the Great Depression and into World War II. All of these things are taking place. A lot is taking place in, in relatively very short amount of time. And this trial was huge, and I could do a whole podcast just on this title or on this trial. I'm not going to do that right now. I'm just kind of giving you an overview of what's happening during this time. 
But this also happened. And the fun, this is the base, baseline of what's taking place is the fundamentalists are going to trial and trying to make it illegal to teach evolution. Now, the ideas of evolution had been coming about before World War One, And again, you have this, this openness to some of this new thinking that takes place. But World War One really pushes the church primarily into this, um, this honor, this glory, this nationalism, this hold on to what we have. Um, and there's literally a battle with some of those things that were being thought through uh, before. So this was, I mean, this... this this trial, um, which, like I said, symbolized the high point of the effort on the part of fundamentalists to ban the teach of the theory of evolution in public schools, an effort in some quarters that would continue into the 21st century. So this kind of keeps moving forward, but this was when it kind of kind of broke. Um, almost all denominations, though, were divided over the issue of fundamentalism. Particularly, this becomes the issue here, the inerrancy of Scripture, which by then had become the hallmark of fundamentalist orthodoxy. And you might be saying, well, you know, if you're Matt, if you're laying out good guys and bad guys, and it seems like your point in liberals is good guys and, and fundamentalists during this time is bad guys, um, but this seems like inerrancy of scripture, that seems like a good guy thing. What I'm trying to tell you is the fact that this time period alienated people from each other and caused good guys and bad guys and for people to believe this and that. I'm not pointing at any one group and saying they're all right or they're all bad. I'm just saying this time period and specifically what pushed this the, which, what fueled it, which I believe, is this kind of isolation, dissent from everything, um, this nationalistic idea, this I am an American and a Christian, this pushed problems and division within the church, and it's affecting everything, all right? It's affecting everything. Um, by this time, um, fundamentalists, uh, this kind of inerrancy of scripture, this was, they kind of held this up as, as this is, we believe this, so we're right. Um, the problem is you hold to the inerrancy of scripture, but then you have, you have, uh, issues with German people. Um, you have your evangelist talking about lining up communists and shooting them in, in a line. Um, but you say scripture is inerrant. You know, some of these things don't really fit because those things are not, Biblical. All right. Um, now, uh, during the 1920s, however, most Protestants were united in one great cause, <laughs> and I love this. So all that this all this stuff is going on, and there's one thing that brings all the Protestants together. All the Protestants. And is it feeding the poor? No, it's not feeding the poor. Is it caring for those who lost people in the war? No, it's not that. Um, is it bringing um, different races of people into the church have been alienated over the course of 15, 16 years? No, no, it's not that. Um, they were united under one cause, and that is the prohibition of alcoholic beverages. There you go. There's what's important. Um, that is something that, as, as Christians, it seems like we we tend to do our very best to find things that we can put all of our time into that is less important than the things that matter. Um, here is a cause that soon enlisted the support of both liberals, for whom it was a practical um, application of the social gospel, and of conservatives, for whom it was an attempt to return to earlier times when the country had, su had supposedly been 
uh, purer. Okay, so it did bring the liberals and the fundamentalists together. Isn't that amazing? And it is it is kind of amazing. So liberals, they say, you know, let's get alcohol. That's true because of, we see the social conflict that it causes, um, all the different things that, you know, uh, addiction to alcohol and alcohol in general can cause. And the fundamentalists, they want to get alcohol um, out because they say that uh, we need to make the United States purer like it was. Now, again, I don't have time to get into all this on this podcast, but this is this is kind of the mentality of the Donald Trump uh, first run for president of Make America Great Again. And it's this embracing of an idea that there was a glorious, glorious past, more glorious past of America than what we currently live, which, um, which is just not, as a whole, something that is achievable. And the reason for that is um, all throughout our nation's history, there have been extreme highs of things that we can celebrate, and there have been extreme lows of things that um, we uh, should be collectively um, ashamed of to the point where we put things in place so they don't happen again. Slavery, uh, genocide of, of Indians, um, uh, uh, Japanese and internment camps. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of things. And so to look back and say that there was a time when things were perfect and pure and now things are not perfect, so we need to get back to that. Um, really, the the things really what we need to be doing is looking at the time period in which we live now, and as Christians, say how can we do our best to serve our neighbor and love our neighbor, regardless of what that neighbor looks like, where he's from, she's from, um, and do our best to live as kingdom people and not idolize a time in which there was always evil along with good, just like all of human history, knowing that that's why we don't put our hope into nations and presidents and leaders, but we put our hope in Jesus. Now, um, it's it's also important that, uh, again, there was this racism that even came out of her racism but also this this looking down on even other types of religions from the protestants as a part of um as a part of this prohibition uh, so even in trying to do good there was this looking down on other people many linked drunkenness with all the evils they claimed had been brought about by the immigration of jews and catholics so there you are so we want to stop get alcohol off the street because we want and look look want things to be pure like they were before in an earlier time earlier day but also um all this problem that we have with alcohol is not really us drinking alcohol it has to do with um the jews and the catholics and all of the uh um stuff that was going on with them um so it, it <laughs> And appealing to the same prejudice against foreigners, Jews, and Catholics that fueled the growth of the Ku Klux Klan, um, they have this stuff pop up even in their ideas for prohibition. Um, and the campaign first succeeded in a number of state legislators, um, and then took a federal, and then took on the federal uh, constitution. And in 1919, by the virtue of the 18th Amendment, prohibition became the law of the land, and it remains so for more than a decade. 
So for more than a decade, you were not able to drink. Of course, this led to uh, much uh, underground of, of making alcohol and sending it around uh, crime. Um, because it was easier to pass this law than enforce it. Um, anytime you pass a law that's almost impossible to enforce, the law becomes a joke. Um, the business interests, gangsters, and the drinking public in various ways collaborated to break the law. To the evils of drinking were then added those of corruption, encouraged by an illicit trade that had become inordinately profitable. And by the time the law had been repealed, the notion that one can't legislate morality had become commonplace in American folklore. Okay, One cannot legislate morality is what the Christians were actually saying. And people who weren't Christians, it seemed like this had been a test of this is what happens when you try to get the government to legislate morality. Um, and it never, never works. But what we see is over the course of the next 50, 60 years, um, Protestant Christians, especially fundamentalists, continue to push on, um, on government to legislate morality. In fact, we did a whole uh, podcast called The Moral Majority. You go listen to that and you'll be it'll be interesting for you because you'll see a lot of this stuff coming out a lot of the problems that we should have learned during this time period of what happens when the church becomes focused on things it shouldn't be focused on um, and what happens this is repeated in the 80s um, you know decades up this repeat in the 80s um, 60 years up or whatever it is and and we see the moral majority, they, they begin to do whatever we can to get the country to legislate morality, and they should look back into history and realize that doesn't really work good. And this notion, popular at first among those liberals, liberals who had given up the idea, the ideal of prohibition would, would later be used also by the conservatives, you know, to, to, do, to do this over and over and over again. So through the end of World War I and the following decade, what I, I want you to see is the basic American mood was one of high expectations. The war and its horrors were dim memories from a distant land. Many people from the United States didn't, couldn't even comprehend what was happening on the, in the battlefields of Europe. And in the United States, progress was still the order of the day. But in churches and pulpits, very little was heard of the new theology that was developing in Europe. Um, so theology and the churches were taking on their own kind of mentality over in Europe, while all of this kind of very nationalistic mentality of church was happening in the States. And really what the deal was, the European theology that, again, you should, you know, we'll look at that at some point, European theology was affected by the war in a different way than the American theology was affected. And, and the only reason I kind of opened that up with European theology is that it's not just American, it's not just Americans or Protestants in America that tend to get pushed, or pushed around by their um, societies and what's going on and, and what's happening. It, this, is a, this is a problem and the problem is, and it continues to be, that the church continually looks outside of itself for hope, for honor, for glory, for acceptance. Um, they look outside themselves for leaders who will fix the world around them instead of looking inward and instead of looking at themselves and then looking outward only to the gospel. 
life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So in this time, things are very, very confusing. And just when Americans and just when the Protestant church is trying to wrap its mind around the fundamentalist debate with the inerrancy of scripture, with evolution, with liberalism, with different denominations, with wrestling through who are we and how we in that we have been confused by society, that we have become um, nationalistic and we look at those outside of the American experience as less than us and how in the world are we to minister to them at this point on October 24th, 1929, Panic gripped the New York Stock Exchange, and we see the beginning of the depression, the crash. And this levels, levels many thoughts that have been happening within the church. And this seems as though the apocalypse has taken place, and it is going to take place. And it only gets worse because we go from the depression. And then we go into World War II. And then from World War II, we get into the Cold War. We get into the, the Korean War. We get into Vietnam. We, it, it goes on and on and on and on. And like I said, it, it, this whole idea of this nationalism, which locks arms with the Protestant church in America, continues to pop up um, every 30, 40 years or so. And it creates a major, major problem. So... What we'll find next time that we talk, we'll talk about the Depression, and we will talk about World War II. We'll talk more about the church in World War II, not necessarily World War II itself. To some degree, we will, but we'll talk more about the church in World War II. But what I will want to bring out to you is that the gospel, as it is embraced, it will be... Um, it will be a foundation for churches to hold on to what it really truly means to be a church in the midst of this apocalypse. Um, this is part of the, the Chicago Declaration that I want to read to you, and there were some theologians that got together and wrote this. We will talk more about the Chicago Declaration next time we get together, but I wanted to read a portion of it. This is not the whole declaration, of course, but I want to read a portion because this kind of encapsulates the the uh, the sentiment of what's happening. What I would say in the true church, not these other church. Again, I, I'm not saying these other churches are not churches or these people aren't Christians, but this is a group of theologians and pastors that are being reminded that we need to focus on serving the poor, loving our neighbor, loving the Lord. Um, these things that are important. And even though, as I mentioned before, even though the fundamentalist kind of held up the inerrancy of Scripture, which is exactly what I would do as well, that's where I would be as well, there was such a perversion beyond that, they, they couldn't even grasp the fact that this inerrancy, um, to, to hold on to what the Bible is actually saying. And, and there were those who were saying, look, this we're becoming more American than we're becoming church. Um, and we want to make sure we make a statement. This is a statement that they say. They say, we acknowledge our Christian responsibilities of citizenship. Therefore, we must challenge the misplaced trust of the nation in economic and military might. We must resist the temptation to make the nation and its institutions subjects of near religious 
loyalty. That's the Chicago Declaration. If you want to Wikipedia that or, or look it up on Google, see a little bit more about um, that gathering of people so that you can see even before we meet. So this is, this statement, these types of statements, these are canceling the apocalypse that's happening. Whether they be the apocalypse that we are talking about, this time between World War One, Great Depression, World War II, or any other time, the apocalypse is canceled, first of all, by the sovereignty of God. He's always in control. But also when Christians, when Christians remember to focus on the gospel, the death, resurrection, life, death, resurrection of Jesus, the sovereignty of God, loving their neighbors as themselves, focusing on those things, and not just saying the Bible is inerrant, but also following what it says. So this is the canceling of the apocalypse. So when we get together again, we're going to talk about the Great Depression, which is very interesting and in how the church responds to the economy going down. Again, we're going to see, you know, if you kind of live through the 2008 uh, crash that we saw in, in, in America, um, there's just many things that maybe you've lived through as you're listening, you're thinking, um, I, I, I feel like these things repeat themselves over and over again. And they really do, not just in American history, they do around the world and empires and countries, large and small. Um, human history just kind of repeats itself. That is one thing that's interesting about it. That's why we can kind of follow the whole, um, if we don't you know, learn history, we are doomed to repeat it kind of messed up that quote but that's you know that's totally true so it's been good talking to you um we have talked about a lot of good stuff i'm, I'm excited to talk about world war ii that's one of my, my favorite time periods um and i probably will talk a lot uh more about history than i i intend um, just world history next time we get together but that's totally fine i think we can learn together all right talk to you later bye mm-hmm.